Welcome. We're recording this on 9-11 Eve, but I believe by the time this is coming out, we'll be on 9-11 proper. Are you guys enjoying the festivities? You set out your jet fuel under your fireplace. I believe that on the night of 9-11 Eve, Osama bin Laden, he comes down your chimney. He's got his beard. He's got his his red suit. He comes throwing bombs at all the American women and children. He scoops up a little jet fuel. You've got to put it out. He won't come unless you've got some jet fuel out. And uh, Wait. What? If he doesn't come if you don't put the jet fuel out, but he's going to throw bombs at you, why would you put the jet fuel out? It's good bombs. No, they're definitely not good bombs. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little confused about this holiday. I... The, okay, the 9-11 Eve tradition that I remember is everybody, you know, you sit around, you get some balsa wood out, you build a nice monument, and then the next day, you put catnip on it. You put catnip on? On your towers, ah. and then you just wait. You wait for that tragic <laughs> moment mm. to strike. I thought you were going to say you were going to, like, fly RC planes into it. Oh, this bit is not going in a direction that I approve <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this is, this, these are the kind of things that you can only have if you were born fucking after 9 11. Uh, oh, what, yeah. what month and year were you born, Leia? November 2001. Yeah, that'll, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, like, if we can kind of cut in here, the kind of aftermath effect, the understanding what happened because of 9 11, but not really 9 11 itself, because you, you know, you weren't alive for it, or in the case of people slightly older than me, but not too old. You were just a child. Yeah, they don't remember it. My kind of cutoff for Gen Z millennials is remembering 9-11 because it's a sort of it was such a clear distinction point between two time periods. And I've written I shouldn't say I've like scrawled bits about the aftermath of 9-11 and how people that were born after 9-11 or don't remember it can only engage with it in the sort of spiritual reified sense that the country has built it into. You have never lived in a pre-9-11 world. Yeah, I I can't understand the concept of like going to an airport and then you just like go board a plane. Like what? It was so chill back before 9-11. You could just be like, hey, we're going to the airport. And it was literally like the closest I could really like describe it would be like if you were to go on a Greyhound bus now, you just Mm. go up, you buy your ticket, you go through and you're just fucking on. And you could literally just take like your family or whatever and you could go through and just stand, you know, that little gate outside the plane and you could just bring them with you and you could just hang out with them. And then when it's time to get on the plane, you would just go yourself and hand off your ticket and get on. And then your family would just go back and you mm-hmm. can't yeah. get shit at all now, man. Jeez. You gotta have your ID and your background check and shit before you can even get on a fucking airplane now. Yeah. No, the airport used to have that kind of quintessentially, like, mystical, like, sort of vibe that, like, we sort of ascribe to certain environments, like train stations, you know, and, like, Harry Potter, of course, being one of the Mm -hmm. most prominent examples of of a train station being used in this way but like throughout like a lot of our media and culture like train stations have this sort of mysticism to them and airports used to have that same kind of vibe in the way that people saw them in their minds like going to the airport was this sort of ah the magic gateway to the sky i'm gonna travel and see the world and a transcendental place of freedom almost Yeah, and the people there are going to enforce that sense of freedom and kindness and everything. And now it's the opposite. You don't feel free at all at the airport. 
Yeah, Ken put it perfectly. Airports used to be like a cool place to go. Like it was considered very classy to go to an airport. I mean, unless you were like a business traveler and you were just used to it. But if you're going to an airport, there was just a feeling of style and sophistication of, oh, we're going to an airport. We're going on a flight somewhere. Now you're you're shepherded through seven different lines and you you got to have all of your body scanned and your bag searched. Yeah. And every single person is interrogating you. Mm -hmm. Every single person is considering you a suspect, even the people who, you know, just work for the airlines and whatever. It's not just the TSA people anymore. One time I accidentally like I was going through this incredibly long list of things on like the self check in terminal. And I hit yes to one of the wrong things. It said I had something flammable in my bag. And like, you would have thought the world had ended just because like I hit the wrong button on a screen. And I was like, no, I just hit the wrong button. Like, please go through my stuff. I don't care. But like, I hit the wrong button. Can we move on? That is so fucked up that that's like our security. We hope that like the people who have the flammable shit, the wrong button. Right. TSA has a laughable failure rate. It is. they, They can't detect shit. I would argue for sure that the point of the TSA, and this will kind of get into a lot of just like, yeah, the consequence of 9-11. The point of the TSA is not to keep anyone safe. It is to create an oppressive atmosphere. It's to build the idea of security. And I mean, you know, these lines, these metal detectors, it all builds to this atmosphere of you are being protected from this nameless, faceless threat that could kill you and destroy everything you love, but we're protecting you from it. You're safe. Right. Meanwhile, there's uh, I, I just looked it up. Uh, the TSA did an internal audit. 95% failure rate. They fail to detect threats 95% of the time. They get people like by accident, basically at random. There's no correlation yeah. between having a TSA mm-hmm. and having. Hey, uh, here's another thing. Uh, Leah, you have no memory of pre Harry Potter, do you? No. <laughs> wow. Shit's wild. I don't want to poke at you like you're a woodland creature or something. <laughs> no, no it's, it's just fine. It's fine. I thought you were going to go into Afghanistan or something or like when the U.S. wasn't at war. But you're like, no, you weren't there before Harry Potter. Let's be real. Brandon and I don't have any memory of pre-Afghanistan. Yeah, that's no, I, I mean, I no, that's I mean, but like that shit started with Bush senior. Oh, well, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it started with Reagan and uh, like funding the Mujahideens. Well, yeah, I mean, that yeah. But anyways, so Brandon, you were saying about Harry Potter. Yeah, we're going to be talking mostly about 9-11, but Harry Potter has also had a really big influence on collective psyche as well. That could be a whole different discussion, obviously, but Mm -hmm. sort of related in a weird way. Yeah, they they both relate to the same eras, kind of. Yeah, they both define the era in their own ways. We can go into this in a different episode, but, you know, there's a very common and stated critique of Harry Potter and that it's neoliberal fantasy where (laughs) any attempts at reforming the system are treated as sort of incredulous, you know, reforming away chattel slavery. And the happy ending of the books is that the main character gets to be the wizard FBI. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole different. That's, That's a whole different can of worms. 
I wanted to stick with uh, TSA for a minute. Oh, sure, sure. Before we move on to other stuff, because there's so many topics to get into. But before we move on from that entirely, like I feel like there's a real reluctance a lot with a lot of people, and especially in the neoliberal mindset, to like take step backwards or like what feels like a step backwards, rather, in terms of like situations like this, where like, well, if we've put in a metal detector, then it doesn't make sense to take it back out, right? Like we've already put it in. If you've ever heard of like on going game development there's this thing called power creep yeah where um over time you add more and more powerful items that players can use and you you know if you want to add more content at the end of it your choices are to increase the enemy's power level but that only gets so far whereas you need to increase the item's power level so you're just playing this kind of this game of increasing things and increasing things and you can't take anything away because you've already gone so far. I can't imagine an airport experience not being intrusive and long and boring and just you just walk to the gate like I, I just can't picture that. Yeah, and it's also another way to look at it is the philosophical viewpoint of sunk cost fallacy, mm -hmm. where like once you've kind of put in a lot of time and effort and resource into something, then you tend to want to like keep doing that thing, whatever it is, even if something better has come along, or you've just realized that this thing was never good in the first place, so you should just get rid of it and that having nothing or a simpler solution would in fact be better. And I'm by no means a primitivist, but like, Sometimes taking a step backwards is the answer. Fucking A. Yeah, it's this weird cognitive dissonance that people have where if you've gone to an airport, you know that TSA is shit and it doesn't do anything and it's just a nuisance for everyone involved. But they still simultaneously hold the idea in their head that the TSA protects us from terrorists and is necessary to maintain our security. Moving to dismantle it is treated as moving to increase terrorism. So one hot take I have, the TSA has had the good effect of giving people who have like low slash minimum education formally, like government jobs. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, no, but for real, like a lot of people who like I know otherwise wouldn't have had that pathway. You go and you work for TSA for like two or three years. You show you can like follow directions and tie your own shoes and like not embarrass yourself. And you do that for a little while and now you have it on your resume. So if you want some other job inside the government, you've worked at TSA for a few years. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. been a good in, an entry level government job that doesn't require a college education. And that's nice. Yeah, it's, it's nice for those people. If only that job didn't involve, you know, actively oppressing and ruining people's days every day of the week. You're kind of in that position of like all cops are bastards and TSA, you're like 50% of a cop at least. Sorry, but like, are you really half fifty percent cop for taking your uh, fucking gasoline out of your suitcase? <laughs> I just hit the wrong button, you fucking pigs. Okay, look, I okay, I've been harassed by TSA a lot. This is some shit that like a lot of people are out there trying to tell their stories of being abused by the TSA, and it's being hushed up. Is it really being hushed up? Are there pro-TSA forces in media and government? It's being hushed up, not in the sense that like the media is not reporting on it at all, but in that thin blue line way where these people are getting shuffled around to different departments and not getting held accountable a lot of the time. Let's talk about Enron. Enron. Let's talk about Enron. You hear about Enron. 
if you're a fucking Zoomer or not a Zoomer, but you didn't pay attention to the news in like late 2001, Enron was a Texas-based energy company that went fucking insane and artificially inflated their stock price with a bunch of semi-legal and illegal financial moves that hid how much shit the company was in. And they essentially got rich on the promise that they would get rich. Let me tell you something. When we talk about Enron, that corporation did not go insane. That corporation went corporation. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Enron's a really good example, but that shit happens in every company everywhere. It was just the scale was so egregious because they were, I mean, you're going to tell the story, but they were fucking with entities that were so powerful that the only financial crime is to take money from rich people. And they committed that crime on a massive scale. I mean, it's like a lot of people try to say that the story of Enron is a story of financial fraud by Kenneth Lay and Andy Fastow. But this involved so much more shit in the greater financial industry that were more than willing to cover this stuff up. Like uh, Arthur Anderson, who was the um, auditing company that they had on retainer and hid a bunch of this shit. For a while, there was five big auditing companies that, you know, could be trusted above all. And there was no questioning like Arthur Anderson or any of the other auditing companies records. The Enron scandal sunk Arthur Anderson like it uh, I don't think it exists anymore there are now four big major uh, auditing companies and the big banks were involved they bought up shares in the uh, meaningless shell companies that Fastow used to hide the company's debt I think um, Merrill Lynch bought three oil tankers for the purposes of an Enron tax dodge that, you know, Merrill Lynch is a bank. They don't have any business owning, I think it was like Ethiopian oil tankers that they didn't do anything with. And uh, unfortunately, only the the kind of heads of Enron were ever tried for this. But th- this was really the web of shit that Enron spun touched every corner of the financial industry. People think of Enron as like a company that did like some bad shit, especially with like energy and power. People don't realize that Enron was a mega corporation and they was hustlers. They had like any kind of scheme that any executive could think of. They would just run the shit. They worked out a deal with Blockbuster to stream movies to people in 2001 with 2001 internet. Yeah, if you were using the internet in 2001, the shit, like when you connect to the shit, it goes, like there was no, I mean, like maybe. Every video came through at like two frames a second. They had a plan to sell weather like stocks and you could like buy shares in the weather. They just had these madcap schemes that, because they, they used mark-to-market accounting, which means that they could record profits in their books for projects that had yet to be realized in any capacity other than, hey, I think this would be a cool idea. We should do this. So when they wrote down that Blockbuster deal, they said, hey, uh, I think this will make like $500 million. Let's write that down in our accounting books. Profit $500 million. When practically nothing Enron was doing was making money, except for the, their California games, which I'll get to. Okay, this actually gives me a lot of very good ideas for this podcast. Oh, God. I think we should use that exact <laughs> same accounting method. Listen, all we are a few thousand Patreon subscribers in each state. <laughs> Multiply by 50. By 26. Exactly. We're going to get a billion dollars. Billion dollars on Patreon very soon, very quickly. Meme it, stream it, dream it. It'll happen. And then we're going to be the next Enron, you know? We'll be be hiring PMCs in Syria or some shit. 
Yeah, or no, we'll talk about hiring PMCs in Syria, record $500 million profit, but never actually talk to anyone from Syria. (laughs) I would love to just pick a state and just fuck with their energy. We'll fuck with like Texas. So Governor Abbott, we're just fucking rolling blackout Texas. We're, we're, we're getting you back. We're getting we're getting back for California. Speaking of, who, wait, who do we want as governor of Texas to replace uh, Abbott? It's got to be like a Schwarzenegger type figure, but for the left, uh, B- Billy Joel. We we got to get Billy Joel as the governor of Texas. Billy Joel as new governor of Texas is an amazing idea. Yes. All right. I'm I'm in. Let me throw an alternative idea at you. Mm. Vermin Supreme. Oh, God. I love it. Vermin Supreme. He's already run for governor of Texas. He can do the job. He's ready on day one. If Vermin Supreme becomes governor of Texas, I will consider moving to Texas, which is a statement I've never said before. Yeah, but God, I think we've gotten a bit ahead of ourselves. For anyone who doesn't know, in the mid-90s, Congress passed an Energy Deregulation Act that allowed states to allocate up to 40% of their energy grid to private companies instead of public utilities. And California did this. And Enron really kind of took advantage advantage of that. They had a whole list of strategies that they used to game California's electricity market and like force municipalities to pay a hundred times market prices. A few times they called power plants and told them to shut off in anticipation of higher demand in order to force rolling blackouts so that they could um, jack up the prices. These motherfuckers was basically extorting the state of California, like on some mob shit. They they were frying the state of California to the tune of billions of dollars, and it sank the political career of California Governor Gray Davis. He was defeated in a recall campaign, and Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor of California because of Enron. Nice Wild. electricity you have in your state. Shame if somebody <laughs> were to come by and fuck that shit up. Just yeah, just fucking tear it up. And what made the shit worse was actually this shit sounds normal now. But mm-hmm. back then it was just wild. They took the money that they made off of the state through this privatization and ran propaganda campaigns against the state for more privatization. The, like the, the, it was clear to everyone in California that something wasn't fucking working. There was rolling blackouts all the time. And Enron, those, those motherfuckers, they used this to argue to California and to argue to Bush's Department of Energy. Hey, you, you know what the solution to too much deregulation is? More deregulation. Deregulation. (laughs) Government is the problem. We didn't deregulate hard enough. Come on, y'all. When you look at the story of Enron, you get some arching themes. And those are that the market is always right. And you can see this in their uh, promotion of deregulation and shit. Another kind of arcing theme is that ideas are king. And the people who think of the ideas are the best instead of the people who implement the ideas. And, you know, kind of pivoting. Uh, oh, oh. You can see a lot of these same problems in the 90s, or at least I, I have to admit here that I never lived in the 90s. So a lot of this is maybe me engaging with the reified concept of the 90s that I have built with the assistance of media and other sort of forms. I just want people to like understand that when all of this shit happened with Enron and California, people thought that was just the way of life in California and that it was just inevitable that they would just have blackouts in the state because there was just too much government and there were Democrats in charge and they just couldn't keep the fucking lights on in the state. And it turns out that once Enron was off the table, once them dudes was gone, there was no rolling blackout issue. And shit that y'all thought was inevitable in that state just disappeared and was no longer an issue. And I wish that we had that energy for problems that we 
have right now that mm-hmm. we assume are just unchangeable features of how fucked up society is. Yeah. Turns out once you get rid of the people that were putting in money and making money off of making things shit for you, your situation just stopped being shit and you had new problems to deal with. Hooray. Heading back to where I was, like I said, when I say the 90s, I'm mainly talking about the concept that I've developed of it around media and other people's recollections that lived in the 90s. The 90s were really weird. Like they don't really fit into the meta-neurovitic themes of the rest of the 20th century in that that being clash of ideology, the fall of empire and clash of ideology being like uh, in World War One between absolute monarchy and republicanism, between fascism and democracy, and between capitalism and communism. And And with collapse of empire being the Soviet Union, uh, Germany the first time, Germany the second time, the Russian Empire, and you know, you know, these sorts of things go on, and you can draw definite trends between the 20th century as being defined between 1914 and 1991. You, You can draw definite parallels within that. But it doesn't really tie into the 90s. With the fall of Soviet communism, there wasn't a strong alternative being presented to capitalism anymore. There was this sort of belief that it had conquered its own contradictions and didn't need to be propped up against something else. Because a lot of pro-capitalist rhetoric was, you know, it's the best system in the world. Look at those Soviets. They're doing real bad. We're not the Soviets. We're doing good. Capitalism's great, but now there wasn't really something to prop itself up against. And it doesn't really compare to the 21st century, too. And we're just sort of getting into it. But still, you can see the sort of trend lines of the decline of 21st century empires, the globalization of the economy and of culture with the internet and such, and the rise of previously sidelined powers to global prominence, be it like Brazil or India or China or what have you. But the 90s just sort of stick out in my mind, as a foreign and distinctly weird time bounded between the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Twin Towers. Yeah, there's this brief period of boundless optimism in a way Mm -hmm. where like, like you said, it's like capitalism has won. Hooray. And like nobody needs to really prove anything. And so with that in mind, like everybody's just kind of like going buck wild, doing crazy Mm -hmm. shit. Fucking. Yeah. Clinton, you know, obviously he wasn't like necessarily the worst president ever, but economically he made a lot of decisions that were not good for the future of our country. Yeah, I mean, to quote Bush Sr.'s uh, last State of the Union, by the grace of God, America won the Cold War. I mean to speak this evening of the changes that can take place in our country now that we can stop making the sacrifices we had to make when we had an avowed enemy that was a superpower. Now we can look homeward even more and set right what needs to be set right. And that's that sort of, you know, we don't have to worry about the enemy of capitalism anymore. We don't need to worry about, like, can it be sustained? It is sustained. We've conquered our enemies. We can do whatever we want now. And that sort of pulls into what I was talking about with the themes of Enron being similar to the themes of the 90s in that there was this boundless optimism, like you said, Ken, for the market. There's this appreciation for ideas and concepts. Uh, you know, if you if you look up Y2K aesthetics, it's this really kind of designer focused moving away from engineers and more towards like clean sci-fi-esque forward-looking design of white tones and curves and, you know, deregulation of the market with the optimism in the market and the promotion of people with ideas 
And that would be exemplified in the dot-com boom and crash where companies could get hundreds of dollars added to their stock price just if they announced an internet-related venture. Everything was subjugated to ideas. The reality of capitalism was subjugated to the idea of capitalism and the reality of the things that we can build with technology was subjugated to, we can stream movies online. We can trade weather like it's stocks. We can sell (laughs) extra bandwidth we don't use at night. Yeah, I'm going to let you get through your thesis and talk about how 9-11 like mm-hmm. impacted this. But I don't think that era has ended. Has it? I like I, I think it's been perfected. Like, I don't want to step on where we're going in terms of how the century has kind of changed in terms of being aimless or driftless or whatever. But I definitely think we've moved from the era of ideology shaping ideas and more about business shaping ideas. But like, It's being perfected now. There's more data. We have a deeper understanding of people on an individual level. There's a much more awareness of marketing and psychology. In a sense, that big ideological project of capitalism versus, you know, Marxist-Leninism has been broken up by technology. And now, instead of it being a massive ideological battle between two poles, it is more attention-based. It's more of everyone is battling for their own personal ideology in the market, and we aren't fighting for people on a societal level because that societal influence doesn't exist in the same way. We now fight for, you know, on an individual level. And that's more of a result of technology. I don't think that the ideological battles of the 1980s could stand the same way in today's environment, not necessarily because of a lack of a superpower, but because of the existence of things like social media. I mean, China still kind of exists in certain ways in that same ideological framework as the Soviet Union, although people will yell at me for that because obviously state capitalism, not exactly the same as pre-collapse Soviet Union, but just in the (laughs) sense of that it existed as a ideological monolith, if that works. But there's Mm. still the scent to that ideological monolith that China cannot completely control because technology is so easy, like anybody can start a mesh social network. So I think that diversity of views and the attention economy was just meant to be an opponent to that 80s mode of thinking and would just inevitably triumph over it because it's so much more decentralized and democratic and all the other stuff. Mm. I have a third take. Sure, sure. So I think that at the beginning of the 20th century slash the end of the 19th century, industrialized hypercapitalism was beginning to sort of wear off on people as a concept. Like it had been being built up for a number of decades by that point, And people were not happy, like the, the working people were not happy with the results and what had changed in their lives. In spite of the fact that everybody was telling them just like now, oh, productivity is up, you know, our factories are better than ever. And just like now they're going, well, where's our wages that, you know, they're not better than ever. (laughs) And so I think that there were sort of chinks in the armor. And so like a lot of the things that we take for granted now, like the five day work week, 40 hours a week, all of these like pro labor things, like a lot of them come from this era of organized labor resistance in the early 20th century, late 19th century, that was in response to this. Okay, and then that movement dies out as we move into sort of like the mid 20th century. And there's a lot of arguable reasons for this. But part of it was because 
there was this active menace of communism and communism didn't look so good from the outside, especially. There was something for capitalism to rhetorically prop itself against. Yeah. And so it was easier to squash all those kind of labor movements, you know, unions died, blah, blah, blah. We all know. And so I think that, you know, we're kind of reaching the end of a cycle and that basically that 9-11 may have been the end point of the cycle where capitalism sort of had the ability to like stand on its own without any resistance of organized labor. Hmm. That's exactly where I was going with this. Thank you. Oh, cool. <laughs> not, not, not really that organized labor lens, but 9-11 being the end of capitalism's ability to rhetorically sustain itself ag against anything. Well, it was a proof of failure. Yeah, of course. We always thought that something like this, and especially speaking as, as somebody who was you know, again, like lived in the pre-9-11 era, we never thought that something like this would happen here, you know? And that even if something like this was going to happen here, that there would be more forewarning, you know, that like there would be some smaller conflicts that broke out first, you know? There'd be some ships on our border somewhere, you know, out in the ocean or something. Something would give us a sign, not that it would be that just this extremely random out of the blue feeling of suddenly we've experienced a not small but massive terror attack with basically no warning that this is a possibility. Let me kind of reach that. But, you know, you guys are kind of leftists that have been online for a while and don't really like neoliberals. Do you know who Francis Fukuyama is? End of history. I'm aware exactly. of the premise of that work. Yes. Yeah. Francis Fukuyama is a Japanese uh, dork who wrote a stupid book in the 90s called The End of History and The Last Man, where he essentially held that with the fall of Soviet communism, mankind had reached the end point of the development of governance. And, he, you know, of course, he didn't mean it's the end of history as in significant things will stop happening, but in that we have perfected how to rule people and we don't need to argue about it anymore. And of course, you know, he was wrong. But, you know, th th that kind of attitude really exemplifies uh, some of those 90s attitudes. And you cut to 9-11 and you cut to sort of afterwards. And one of the big problems with 9-11 was that it didn't present an alternative to American capitalism. Like, let me, uh, let me dig this out. Uh, Fukuyama himself, he wrote in 2001, a little bit after 9-11, it makes more sense to ask where radical Islam constitutes a serious alternative to Western liberal democracy. And of course it doesn't. The, you know, the terrorists on 9-11 weren't saying to America, you should adopt a fundamentalist interpretation of Islam and install a theocracy from Washington, D.C. There wasn't that kind of supplantion as if it would have been like a, a Soviet terror attack or something. And so the combined effect from that would be that capitalism had uh, proof of failure shown. It couldn't support itself rhetorically, and there was nothing to support it against. So you entered this kind of sleepwalking state. And, you know, this kind of goes towards what you're saying, Brandon, of those guiding principles of the 90s are still being followed today. But where I come in is sort of in they're being followed in, in a sleepwalking manner such that there's no backing to them imagine an old film set like a wild west film set there's buildings there but you can't walk inside of them there's nothing behind the just the facades it only exists to signify something for the camera that this is a town those are buildings within the fiction 
In a material sense, what do you consider to be the backing? Like, what makes a movement real outside of ideological? I mean, there, there was a. What I mean is that. Do you guys know the philosophical concept of the Big Other? Mm -hmm. For those who don't, the Big Other is like um, in pre-Khrushchev Russia or the Soviet Union, everybody knew that Stalin's economic policies weren't working. Stalin knew it because, you know, he was getting the reports every day. All of the apparatchik geeks knew it because they were the ones preparing the ports, reports and doing the analysis. All of the workers knew it because they weren't getting jack shit from the economy. Everyone knew that the economy wasn't working, but they weren't allowed to say it because the big other, the sort of reified idea of the unified consciousness of the state and the people didn't. And once Khrushchev broke that silence and let the big other in on the open secret that maybe Stalin did a bad with the economy, then everyone else could start saying it. And that's what I feel like happened in the 90s between the 90s and now, that there was a sincere belief before the big other didn't know that the 90s were a failure because within the upper echelons of Enron, they knew that their empire was built on sand and was going to collapse. And in the months before their bankruptcy, they moved out all of their stock into cash and put that cash into untraceable accounts and yada, 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 normal rich stuff, jumping off the ship stuff. So what 9-11 did was the equivalent of Khrushchev's secret 20th uh, party speech. It let the reified idea of capitalism know that capitalism didn't work. And we're still sort of here, even though we know it's not working. And, you know, we're allowed to express it's not working. The system knows it's not working in a state that it didn't before. But we don't have an expressed alternative to it so we continue doing it uh, to, to put it more succinctly enron went rather quickly into bankruptcy proceedings and those bankruptcy proceedings lasted two to three years all the meanwhile their operations were gradually slowed down what little operations enron actually had on the ground and not just that existed on paper they were slowly kind of wound down and spun off into other businesses and enron was reabsorbed into the greater market that can't happen for global capitalism. There's no greater market to absorb us into to break down the failing processes. So we're still stuck in the bankruptcy proceedings of global capitalism that have been going on for 18 years since 9-11. And it's a system that has worked without needing that backing or without needing that input. And I think that's kind of important to point out that the technological aspect of marketing and being able to mass market on a personal level has made it that so that there doesn't need to be a specific ideological backing in society as a whole. We just need to prevent people on an individual level from wanting or investigating those alternatives to mm. the current structure. So basically what I'm saying is it's not an accident of history. It's something that's been done with intent. There needs to actually be very little in terms of the structure in order to have an ideological capture of society. You just need the newspapers. You just need the TV. You just need the movies. And most people, you got to remember, don't care about the social structure of society. I know we talked about this in an earlier show, but most people hate politics and they think it sucks because mm -hmm. it does suck. And it's boring because it is boring. And it's ideological draining because it is. When you go on Twitter and half of the people who are on the left on Twitter are screaming at everyone who's coming in that they need to leave as soon as possible because it's destroying them psychologically. I mean, I go on Twitter and if you read, I'm not even going to shout this particular human's feed out, 
But if you read their account, it's like they're in Get Out and they're like grabbing the person and just saying, go, go as soon as you can. And you get that from so many people who are on social media. Their input into the system and their raising of alternatives isn't needed as much because the system, in a psychic sense, it feels like it maintains itself without our input. That's also something you hear when you talk about are results that come from Congress. Most of what people want, if you run polls, they want like background checks or they want a national medical system Mm -hmm. or they want more taxes on the rich or they want more funding into education, specifically like preschool. There are a lot of things that are uncontroversial among the actual people, but the system has built itself in a way that it can sustain itself without that input because it relies on people being passive. And the people that are passive are so far gone from the political discourse that there's not a way to reach them through stump speeches, if you know what I mean, or podcasts or tweeting. Mm. I don't agree entirely. specifically. In the context of like, especially in the in the face of like alt-right stuff, because I would say that like there is more motivation towards fascism within our collective American body than there is towards capitalism, because even a lot of people who would stand there and support fascism would like complain about their working conditions or would, you know, have some critique of. of Yeah, like we've said this in episode after episode, but there is a fundamental seed in people that what we have right now isn't good and that something better can be made. Also, like, Brandon, you asked, what does it mean to, like, have something behind those buildings, you know, those facade buildings that Leia was talking about, right? It means, like, actually having, like, motivated people that, like, want to engage with whatever your your thing is. There aren't that many people that are actually excited to engage with capitalism anymore on the right or the left or anywhere on the political spectrum. Back in the 90s, there was actual excitement for the development of capitalism into something greater. But now, who the fuck is saying that? Yeah, people were excited to start careers and shit in the 90s, you know? We should bring some people from the neoliberal podcast on because I think they're the last one. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But no, yeah, I think we have sort of the same point. Just to finish my thought real fast, where are the boots actually on the ground? At this point, there are a lot more people interested in labor issues actively than there are actively interested in like being excited about capitalism every day. Mm -hmm. I think we're kind of in agreement. I do agree that there's like autopilot going on, but I think I'm just stressing the fact that there is an autopilot. Like it's not just flying passively. It's not just a beaten husk. It's on autopilot and it doesn't take a lot of people to man that ship and steer it. And it can't because there's no emotional enthusiasm. There's no optimism behind it, but it does exist. There are a handful of people who are getting the money or whatever, you know, a lot of money lavished on a handful of people. And it's existing in that passive state, but it it exists and it is moving in a direction. Mm. It is going to be on people to stop that. It's not just the inertia of history. It takes people really having an elevated amount of consciousness. Yeah, for sure. To an extent, I agree. But I also think to a certain extent, it just takes people walking away from things, you know, even if you can't articulate all the solutions, if you're just willing to say, I'm not going to participate in all the shitty things. Yeah. Yeah. Apathy is one of the left's most powerful weapons right now. I mean, it's the it's like that old Haywood quote. All the workers have to do is put their hands in their pockets and they got the capitalists whipped. 
Exactly. Even if not everyone can articulate solutions or fully understand them, I actually think that we just need people to quit being complacent in the system. And a lot of people are doing that. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we could mm -hmm. point to, such as low numbers in military enrollment or things like that. It's important to remember, though, that it's not just apathy that you are wrestling with. It's really like terror. Mm -hmm. You know, it's fear because right. there's a system now of people might not like the system that they're in and they might not have enthusiasm for it. But I don't think that there's a mass understanding that things can be better than they are now. And I also think there is a mass worry that, you know, if I miss a couple of paychecks, it is over. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that you, you also have to work to break that ideological fear. It's not just a matter of, I mean, putting your hands in your pockets during that time of world history was actually a very courageous act because if you put your hands in your pockets, somebody would come to bust your head open. Like yeah. this was not just like you're on Twitter and you put your you're on Twitter strike. You put your hands in your pockets and Twitter crashes. No, no. And, and I mean, you know, when we say put our hands in our pockets, we're not you know, it's not just that. Of course, it means when we're saying that when we're saying apathy, we mean we mean, yeah, building mutual aid structures and refusing to perpetuate capitalism. Yeah. But but to me, that could also be resisting an ICE arrest. You know, the way neighborhoods have done that in these pretty like they're not mm -hmm. like being aggressive about it. They just form these human shields and just say no. That's a pretty passive resistance. You don't need to be able to articulate like complete solutions to systemic problems to participate in something like that. We move from people believing in the system, you know, because they sincere, sincerely believed that it would do good to now where a lot of people believe in the system just because the system requires them to believe in it. And they think it's inevitable and they mm -hmm, think yeah. history has been perfected mm -hmm. and they don't want to be the first ones to jump into the wood chipper to, to jam their hands into the gears or whatever. Well, and I think the fear that you brought up is really important and it's very relevant to this episode and these topics because 9-11 was a big part to kind of like bring this whole episode full circle maybe. 9-11 um, was a big part of instilling this fear into people that we need these new levels of security and that even if you don't agree with all of the things that are happening, to take those away is to invite another 9-11. You're right, exactly. And that, I think, that those kinds of fears, they're existential, they're primal. That's something that I think is actually probably tougher to wrestle with than trying to just convince somebody your job sucks or whatever. <laughs> I think we've kind of reached a natural kind of conclusion here where we uh, we agree with each other on a number of important points, just kind of differing on some minor ones. Yeah, just on what should be emphasized, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to close with, you know, this has been a pretty heavy discussion. So I want to close with kind of a bit. I've had this thought for a long time now that an interesting purgatory would be to permanently live in early morning, Tuesday, September 11th, like before anyone knew that the attacks were happening. You just kind of subsist in a time loop there. I feel like the people who host the neoliberal podcast are trapped in there and like we're kind of <laughs> hearing their electronic echoes or something that was um i don't want to end with 9-11 recollections that's probably too sad for this episode but it yeah. was a very it was a very ordinary day and then it was a day where like you didn't know what was going on and anything could happen and that was the real psychological grip like obviously the actual attack was really horrible but also the actual news nobody knew what was going on i mean unless you were really into bill clinton's foreign policy you had no idea who al-qaeda was or you know you didn't yeah. know 
One of my favorite Vaporwave albums, News at 11, really focuses in on the feeling that was had before 9-11 on the day of 9-11. And it does this by incorporating uh, samples from news broadcasts on that day before the events happened. It's one of my favorite Vaporwave albums for that exact reason, that it creates this feeling of you know what's going to happen. You have the foresight of being from the future, but you still can't help but be enraptured by this spirit of the 90s and of that optimism that thought it could go forever but you know is going to die in an hour or two nostalgic vaporwave albums about 9-11 is probably the most zoomer thing you have ever said on this <laughs> like by a lot yeah oh. let's try to end on a positive note like we often do and just if there's one thing that we could envision it would be that we can have that kind of boundless optimism again but this time not propped up by a failing system that we'll soon see the failures of but propped up by a movement of the people united by working class struggles united by anti-racist struggles lgbt Mm -hmm. struggles disabled struggles yeah all of the above all of us united together working together and that we have a new era of boundless optimism that's founded on that kind of rock salad base that we can take to the future May we have a socialist 90s, but it's not propped up on lies. And may the cartoons be just as good. (laughs) Oh, boy, you fucking wish. We're Uh, never going back to those. Well, actually, you know what? They're making good cartoons now. I take it back. There's some very good cartoons. Anything is possible. We have been faithfully, not safe for wonks, Leia Rose. Brandon Buchanan. And I'm Kennedy Cooper. Thanks for listening. See ya. Be sure to uh, check us out on Patreon. We're patreon.com slash not safe. And also review us on iTunes. That's always super important. Mm -hmm. We're doing this on a shoestring budget. It actually costs us money to run this podcast, which is kind of bullshit. So if everybody chips in like 10 bucks, we'll probably run even, which would be great for our little co-op. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.